Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My heart is full already. Praise God. It's so good to be with you. Uh, Jeremy and Samantha, it's so good to have you home. Zach, you're such an impressive guy. You are a credit to your parents. You're like a wonderful combination of mom and dad, and that is awesome. (laughs) If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 this morning and summarize Paul's argument through chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 22 through 25 as we've been marching through Romans. If you're new with us, you can find a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of the Bibles you can find in front of you. Keep that as our gift to you. And we've been working our way, as is our habit here on Sunday mornings, just through books of the Bible. We find ourselves in the letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Rome that we call Romans. And we're just taking it Sunday by Sunday. We started in January. We will definitely be in it through the rest of this year. And We'll end when we end, or Jesus will come back, and there will be no more need for preaching. (laughs) And we find ourselves here at the end of chapter 4, where Paul is summarizing his argument up to this point, and just very quickly in a few sentences, Paul's point up to Romans in this point has been that God is holy and that all people fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinners, whether we are religious people like the Jews in the Old Testament or non-religious people like the Gentiles, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Man stands rightly under the just wrath of God. Nobody is neutral, nobody's good, nobody slips in because they're a pretty good guy, everybody is accountable to a holy God, and that will not go well for you because God's holy and we're not. But God, in his kindness, has put forward his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to be a sacrifice. The biblical word is propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice to satisfy the gift of the, the wrath of God and turn that wrath into favor and grace for all those that believe. And now, this gift of belief, which the Bible calls faith, isn't something that we drum up, but actually it's something that God gives to us. And all of what Romans chapter 4 is about is an example of how this works. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes this Old Testament example of Abraham and says, even great Abraham, who was this man of great works in a sense and holiness, Even he wasn't saved by what he did, but by what God did in him by giving him the gift of faith. So let me read Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25, and then we'll pray and work through the text. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Paul's referring to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Praise God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that inspired 
people to write it. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes as we open our Bibles and as we stare at your word, would you open our hearts with your Holy Spirit and do your work for your glory and our good. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase and that your will would be accomplished this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, you've noticed maybe if you've come on Wednesdays that we've been having some young guys preach on Wednesdays, which has gone really, really well. If you weren't there, you can find them on the, um, the internet on our website. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll download the audio and video. But before I preach and before these young guys preach, I like to ask them this question. If on Saturday night or Tuesday night before you were preaching, whatever the day may be, if somebody woke you up at 3 o'clock in the morning before you had to get up and proclaim God's word to God's people, what, what would you say is the point of the text? It's the, it's the 3 a.m. test. In other words, what, what's the point of the passage? And that's what preaching is about. Not thoughts that I have, not proverbial you know, tips on how to get through a better day, but what's the point of the passage? Woken up at 3 a.m., which occasionally happens in my house because of some domesticated animals that my family... Anyway, never, never mind. And if you woke me up at 3 a.m. in the morning last night and said, what is the point of Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, I would say this, and this is really, we're going to put it up on the screen. This is the main point of today. This is really the only thing that we'll have up there other than scriptures and a few things that we'll read. It is this, that... This is what justification is. This really important biblical theological concept. Meaning how will sinners, which is all of us, be made right before a holy God? How will they be justified? How will they be acquitted of their guilt? And the answer to that is that by the gift of faith, everything that Jesus accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection, God considers ours. Friends, I think a lot of us in this room know that, but let's stare at that and let's just do more than know that. Let's drive it down. Let's knead it into the, to the batch of dough that is our heart and our minds and our affections and our emotions. And let's let that truth be more than something that we cognitively acknowledge, but actually then let it transform our lives this morning before we come to the Lord's table and receive communion as is our custom on the first Sunday of every month. What does it mean? How are, how are people made right with the Holy God? What does it mean to be justified? That by the gift of faith that God gives dead sinners, all that Jesus accomplished through his Sinless, perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious, victorious resurrection, God considers, counts, reckons, imputes as ours. <laughs> That's way better than you are making out right now. <laughs> Let's look at the text again. Just plot our way through it. Verse 22, it says that Abraham had, it says that that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So I think what that text is telling us is that Abraham had 
the type of faith that saves. That, those two words. Let's, let's not just parachute down into a text, but read the Bible in context. Read whole chapters. Read whole letters in, in one or two settings. Don't, don't get in the habit of merely uh, of kind of snacking on devotional passages or, or, or things that are published by a publisher. Those can be very helpful, and I'm not dogging those, but I'm saying don't just, don't just read portions of Scripture. Know the whole context. That's why we work our way through books of the Bible so that we see the grand overarching message of the letter. And we need to ask this question as we arrive at verse 22. That is why, what, what is Paul referring to? What, what, is, what is that? What's the that that he's referring to? Well, the that that he's referring to is this gift of faith that Abraham has been given by God's grace. And remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 18 through 21, where it says that this gift of faith, and I'm summarizing and paraphrasing here, that God gave Abraham a gift of faith even when the circumstances looked dead. Even there, when there was no reason to be hopeful, God is the type of God who creates something out of nothing. God calls life from death and creates something from where there is nothing. And that's exactly what he did in Abraham's heart when he gave Abraham faith. And so before we move through the rest of the text, let's just reorient ourselves to this great truth that is so clear for us in Romans, especially in Romans chapter 4, that faith that Abraham exercised that then allowed him to appropriate all of this gift of justification in his life is given to him. It's not a work that he provides. It's not something he does, but it's something that God works in him. We cannot emphasize that enough. We can't memorize. We can't we can't repeat that enough in our hearts. Why? Because even those of us who know that truth, we're so prone to forget it, aren't we? we? We, by nature, even though we believe and confess and herald the gospel, well, on Tuesday, we will fee feel pretty, pretty bad about ourselves because we, we subconsciously revert into this, this false notion that we are made right with God by ourselves. So we can't repeat this truth enough that faith is a gift. And this is just before we move on to verse 23. There are several ways that this should hit our heart today. If you are a Christian, if you're believing in Christ, this should freshly humble you and cause you to worship him afresh. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. He says, and it's because of him, meaning God and his grace, it's because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if you are breathing this morning and you're believing in Jesus and every wicked deed that you have done and thought of is now canceled, atoned for by the blood of the Son of God, it's not because we ultimately figured it out. It's because of God's sovereign grace. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. But verse 4 says, but God made us 
alive. And remember a couple weeks ago, we read the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, where Lazarus was dead. In fact, he was so dead that his body was decomposing. He stunk. And Jesus walked up to his tomb and said, Lazarus, get up. Jesus made him alive by the power of his word, which is victorious over death, life, and the grave. And Lazarus got up. That story is in the Bible to give us a picture of how God saves all people, whether you came to Christ through good parents when you were five, or whether you came to Christ through a life of sin when you were 50. God makes us alive. And after Lazarus got up from that grave, he didn't walk around Palestine for the rest of his life saying, look, look, look what I did. I brought something to the table, and Jesus worked with me. No, the only thing Lazarus brought to the table was his stink. And the only thing we bring to the table is our sin. And God makes it so. So this should have profound implications for, shouldn't this, just, just realizing this afresh, I know you know this, but just, just realizing and hearing this afresh, this is why Christians need the gospel. Because shouldn't this, shouldn't knowing that, shouldn't that have profound implications? Shouldn't that vertical realization of God's sovereign, utter, good, unmerited, free grace, shouldn't that bend out horizontally in every direction in our lives? Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it inform how we view other people who are also still dead in their sins? Shouldn't it inform how we engage one another, those of us who have been made alive but are still, like Lazarus, getting our grave clothes taken off of us? Come on, that's sanctification, isn't it? Shouldn't it inform, if you are conservative politically, how you view somebody who's liberal politically? If you're liberal, shouldn't it, cons- shouldn't it inform how you perceive and view people that are conservative? Shouldn't all of our lenses be through the truth of the gospel? Shouldn't it, shouldn't it inform the things that we post on social media? Sh- shouldn't it? It should have a profound, it's getting uncomfortable, I'll move on, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying that the gospel is the good news of God's unmerited grace in our lives. And if you are not yet believing in Jesus, Oh, dear friend, this is actually really, really good news. Because the good news of the gospel is not try really hard. And if it's like the, the, it's like the boyfriend that takes his girlfriend to the fair. And you know there's that one, uh, that one little game where you give a couple quarters or whatever. And he's got to get a hammer and he's got to hit the thing. And it goes up, you know. And if he rings the bell all the way to the top, he can get like the big, huge boo-boo kitty stuffed animal, you know, like they ha- used to have on Laverne and Shirley, which I just lost everybody that's under the age of 40. And, and so, so sometimes we kind of think of, wrongly, we think of God's acceptance of us like that, right? Like, Maybe we think, I've got to clean myself up before I can be part of this church. Man, I came into this room. There seems to be something flowing here. There's a vibe. These people are into it. They believe the Lord. There's a couple people here that are going away or coming back from faraway lands. These people take it serious. Oh, my gosh. There's nothing in me that could, I could never be like these people. Friends, don't misunderstand. 
The message of salvation is not how far, how hard you can hit the, the little thing to ring God's bell. The, the good news of the gospel is that there's nothing you can do, but God in his grace delights in making people like you who have nothing to commend themselves to God and making them alive for the glory of his name. And, that's, and everybody in this room who looks so squared away, that's exactly the thing that God did in their lives too. So don't be fooled by some shiny exterior. They were dead too. So when you realize that, when you see that, what it does in your life and in your heart, I'm praying, is that finally, for the first time, it would push you away from yourself, away from dependence, away from working, and cause you to fall into God's grace, which he works in your heart. So let's not, let's not, let's not forget what the that is that caused Abraham. It was that type of faith that caused him to receive righteousness. Verse 23, we see that there's a lot more going on here than just an individual work in Abraham's life. There's something that God is doing throughout history. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, and he's quoting, remember it there, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Remember Abraham is in his, his old age, about to be 100, his wife is in her early 90s. God told them that they would have a baby through their union, not through some slave woman or not through any other means, but that God would create life out of nothing. He would call into existence things that do not exist. He would take an old, infertile, womb and open it up so that it might have this child of promise that then would be the nation of Israel that would be this Old Testament people that God would work through to bring the Messiah. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believed God's word, even though all of the circumstances seemed contrary to it, what does Paul say? They were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So this is a, a clue to us that God is orchestrating, has orchestrated, is unfolding a divine plan of redemption. That Abraham is a, is a kind of prototype or a picture that serves as an example for all those that would come after him of how people are made right with God. Namely, we've been saying it a lot now, not by our works, but by God's grace that he gives us through the gift of faith that we then exercise back towards him, right? So Abraham becomes this kind of pattern. And it's a display to us that God has always been in utter control of salvation redemption, and in fact, all of human history. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fell in the garden, and, and God is sort of issuing his judgments to Adam, and then to Eve, and then to the serpent, and he says to the serpent, who's this, this personification of the devil himself, he says that the offspring of this woman, Eve, is going to come and crush your head. And we don't know what it means at that point. We're just thinking, like, is Eve going to have a baby? 
And then is this baby going to end up defeating evil? Well, she does have a couple babies, Cain and Abel, and it goes kind of poorly with them. But we see this line going all the way through the Old Testament. But we see now, in retrospect, that the offspring that was prophetically spoken about to Eve in Genesis 3 is ultimately who? Jesus, right? And Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection, defeats evil on the cross. And so we see even before Abraham, God has had this plan. And the way people are going to trust in this offspring of Abraham is through faith. But even before that, we read later on in the New Testament that Jesus, in fact, the last book of the Bible in Revelation, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. Okay, if, you've been, if you haven't been tracking with me up to this point, first of all, exhale. I need to exhale. <sighs> and just track with me kind of on a timeline here. Everything that's happened in the Bible up to this point, at the very end in Revelation, John the Apostle, through the Revelation, Jesus speaking to him on this island of Patmos in slavery, says that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Lamb, a picture of a sacrifice, slain before the foundations of the earth. So that means that in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell, God had already had a plan for that. <laughs> he... He has orchestrated all of human history to serve the display of the glory of his grace. And man, are we going to get to that when we get to Romans chapter 9. But I can't get into that right now because it will blow up this Sunday. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> the point being at this point, friends, is that when we read that this, this way of salvation, that it was counted to Abraham through faith, but it's not just written for him, it's written for us also, that we too can be part of this, this redemptive plan that God has orchestrated before time. Friends, what impact should that have on us as we live in 2017 in a chaotic world? Friends, it should put steel in our spines. Because God is in control. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Listen to Psalm 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So Genesis 3 didn't just sneak up on God. Genesis 3 didn't just surprise God. In fact, Genesis 3 is not God reacting in some mysterious, glorious way. God has planned for, even ordained the fall for the display of his glory. And every wicked person that does anything against the glory of God, God is over that. And then even things that seem random at the end of that proverb, verse 33, the lot, in other words, like die that you would cast, like rolling dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That means even something seemingly as random as the tossing of dice, God utterly controls. Listen to what uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says now. If you don't know what the Heidelberg Catechism says, I think you should, um, not right now because I know half of you have smartphones, so first of all, get off Instagram and listen. No, I'm not, I'm being silly. Some of you, 
like you're so distracted, right? And I'm like a, I mean, I, I, I'm just kind of an average preacher at a medium-sized church in West Central Georgia. I mean, I'm no big deal. But God, I do think God speaks through us here when we gather. And so get off your phone, open your Bible, and, and focus because God, God has a word for you today. And so I'll, that was all just sort of extemporaneous right there. I didn't mean to scold you that bad, but if it was for you, listen to it. But later today, after the service, you should download on your phone the Heidelberg Catechism, and you should read it, and it will bless your socks off. And what was it? It was a catechism. What's a catechism? Most of you that grew up Protestants, you think catechism is just like some strange Catholic word. Don't, 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 don't tune me out. Catechism is just a word that means teaching. And it was a way that the church, all the church, it was kind of in question and answer format where it was a way of just teaching biblical truth to children and to people. And in the city of Heidelberg, Germany, after the Protestant Reformation, some of the reformers came up with what is called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it is a way of teaching good truth. And listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 27 and 28 about the utter exhaustive sovereignty and providence of God in all things. Because remember, we're casting this in the light of the fact that God has had this redemptive plan that he initiated through Abraham. And it wasn't just for Abraham, but it's all those that would follow. So God is in control of human history. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism question 27 says. What do you mean by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty, ever-present power of God by which he still upholds as though with his own hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And they're basing these, these questions and answers on scriptures that are all throughout the Bible about God's utter sovereignty. Scriptures like Ephesians 1 verse 11 that says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then what, how should that benefit us? Look at, verse, uh, look at the screen, verse, uh, chapter, or, I'm sorry, question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does it help us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and confident for the future in our faithful God and Father, fully trusting that nothing in creation can separate us from his love, for all things created are so entirely in his hand that was without his will, they cannot even move. So God has been orchestrating redemption through Abraham as a pattern for us, just the way it happened to Abraham is the way it comes to us by God's sovereign gift of faith, which then causes us to be able to access, access all that Jesus has done for us. And oh, by the way, timid, fearful, anxious Christian, God has set this up. He has rigged this gig since before the foundations of the earth. So whether I live to 90 and I pass away 
peacefully. You know, I used to say 60 or 70 years. And as I get older and as the church gets older, I, I just up it a decade every year. So let's even go further. Even if I die in my early 100s peacefully, taking a breath as I fall to sleep, or whether something tragic happens and stuffs my life out, all of it is according to the sovereign and good plan of God for my life. No matter what some terrorist in the Middle East does, no matter what some market does if it crashes, no matter what some employer does if he fires me unjustly, God is in control. He's been in control of human history. And as chaotic as it all may seem, God sits on his throne and does whatever he pleases for the glory of his name and the good of his people. That, you just got a shadow box after that. <laughs> one, one more little thing. Just, just, I just thought about this. I don't even know if this is a legitimate point of the text. And when we get together at our staff meeting and I let the young guys criticize my sermon, they may bring this up, but whatever. I'm just going ahead right now and telling you I realize that this may not be directly from this text, but it just came to me. So, uh, yeah, put that in your pipe, young guy, and smoke it. God is gracious to give us patterns, isn't he? And he's given Abraham as a pattern. He's given Abraham as an example of how faith works. In fact, at the end of Romans, in Romans 15.4, I think it is, it says that these things were written down in the Old Testament for our instruction. And God has given us his word. God has, given, God has preserved these stories like Lazarus' resurrection. God has preserved the stories of men like Paul who were, were wickedly opposing Jesus and his gospel and God knocks him off of his horse and radically transforms his life. God preserves and calls a man like Peter who's, who's arrogant, boisterous, and then timid before a little girl at a campfire, not able to confess Jesus. And then God gets a hold of his life. The Holy Spirit falls on the church, and Peter becomes this great apostle, preaching the glory of God. Friends, God takes Matthew, who is a treasonous tax collector, and calls him to be one of his disciples, and through him comes the first gospel in our Bible. Friends, God, God has done so much for us. He's done so much for us. He's given us the ability to gather together in a local church, which is so full of faults and, and problems, but God has given so much to us. He's given us his word that's been preserved for us. Friends, friends God has been good to us. And, and God has caused us to be patterns for one another. Let's avail ourselves of that. Are you a pattern for somebody, Christian? Come on, like, like give your life away. Come on, let's, 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 let's love each other. Let's get into each other's lives. Let's not stay on the edge. Verse 24 and 25, the second half there, we'll end on this. It says, it, halfway through verse 24, Meaning righteousness, justification, right standing with God. Everything that Christ has won for us, ours, it 
will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was, verse 25, oh, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, let's look at that word counted in verse 24. It's been all throughout Romans chapter 4 up to this point. It appears like four or five times. And it is saying that the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Jesus himself, the sinlessness, the victory of Jesus himself is counted to Abraham. And remember, it's not just written for Abraham, but all of us who have faith in God, like Abraham, it's, it's ours as well. It is counted, it's considered to be his by faith, which, oh, by the way, isn't something you generate. God must give it to you. And so this word counted, what does it mean? It does not mean, listen to me, it does not mean that God actually infuses us with righteousness or that he all of a sudden makes us righteous. That's another theological term in truth called sanctification. And we're going to start getting into that in Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, and 8. We're going to get into that. It's not the actual making of a person being righteous, but it's God declaring. It's God saying. It's God considering that that person is righteous. Why is it really important to understand the difference between justification and sanctification? Justification is God just considering, declaring, treating somebody as if all of Christ's righteousness is theirs. And that happens the moment of conversion. Why is it important to understand that that is different and separate from the process of sanctification, which is where God actually makes us through us yielding to the means of his grace, the word, the Holy Spirit, all of the things that God gives us over the course of time, progressively, he makes us more and more like Jesus. Why is it important to make that distinction? Because the moment a person is justified, if they were to be ran over by a bus right then, they would go and be with Jesus. It's like the thief on the cross, right? And it also explains that holiness, actual infused change in a person's life, is something that happens progressively over time, which answers a whole bunch of questions for me. That's why, that's why y'all are still kind of jacked up, and so am I. Because justification doesn't mean complete transformation. It just explains the beginning of the Christian life. Now let's roll up our sleeves and do life together so that we progressively can become more and more like Jesus. And oh, we're going to dig into that when we get into five, six, seven, and eight. This actually, this, this understanding of the difference between the two became a real, a real battle in the Protestant Reformation. Because the Catholic Church at that time, and to, the, to this day are still teaching this, I think very erroneously and falsely, is that a person receives a kind of infusion, a kind of change of their nature by justification. And the Protestant reformers said, no, that's sanctification. That's something that continues for the rest of our lives. But now in this moment, God just considers, he declares he treats somebody as if. In fact, there's a real good southern word that we have for it. Reckon. In fact, maybe some of you in your Bible have reckon, and that's a good word. 
God reckons us. God reckons us. He considers people who are still in so much need of transformation. He reckons them by grace to be all that Christ is. Let me read to you. This is, this is uh, obviously you can tell I've been reading some old confessions of the faith. Heidelberg Catechism. This week I was reading the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I got a new um, copy of it in the mail this week in kind of modern English. And uh, I just have been just using it to feed my soul in the Lord. And let me read to you what these English Puritans in the 1600s, the statement that they came up to summarize this truth. Okay, I'm not saying in any way that the Puritans or the English in the 1600s are perfect in any way. I'm just saying God really, really used the Reformation in England, in particular in the 1600s, to crystallize and clarify a whole bunch of gospel truth that has been written down for us and is just excellent for the soul. And this is what some British or some English leaders in the church wrote as the confession of faith for really Protestantism in many ways in 1689 on paragraph 11 or chapter 11 on justification. Listen to this. Paragraph 1. Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Remember what is justification? It's God reckoning all that Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. He considers it ours. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them. That's going to be sanctification. That starts the moment of conversion, but that's going to be progressive throughout the rest of your life. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone. Not because you're American. Not because you grew up in the Bible Belt. Not because your dad is a pastor or your mom played the organ or whatever. He loves you for the sake of Christ because he loves you. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. Friends, isn't that great news? That means that God, in his sovereign grace, makes unrighteous people, which is all of us, alive in him according to his gracious will, not because of anything they have or have not done, but because of his love. That means nobody is outside of the reach of God's grace. That means nobody is too far gone. If you're in this room right now and you have bought into the lie that if we only knew what you have done or are doing, we would realize that there's no hope for somebody like you. I want you to realize right now that that is a lie coming straight from the pit of hell. He does not impute faith itself the act of believing or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes. Remember, what does impute? He considers, he reckons, he treats them as if. He treats them as if. 
Christ's active obedience to the whole law. That means Jesus' 33 perfect years of sinlessness. God treats you, if he gives you the gift of faith, which you behold Christ in, he treats you as if that's yours. And passive obedience in his death, meaning Jesus giving himself voluntarily. That's what that word passive obedience means. In his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. And oh, by the way, just in case we forgot, this faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. Paragraph 3. By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all those who are justified. Are there any guilty, anxious Christians in here this morning wondering whether or not God is angry at you? If the Bible is true and if these English Puritans got it right, then he is not that doesn't mean that in sanctification, God does not show us displeasure towards us. We'll get into that. But we're talking about justification right now. We're talking about what commends a person to God. And it is that Christ has fully paid the debt of all those that are justified. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who, verse 32 of Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And Jesus has more than enough and sufficient holiness to attend for all the sins, to atone for all the sins of all the people that ever trust in him. Grace is a bottomless well. All your sins past, current, and future removed as far as the east is from the west. And why is it east and west? Have you ever thought of that? Because if you go east, you will always be going east. If you go west, you will always be going west. It's infinitely removed from one another so far as he removed the transgressions of those who fear him and who trust in Christ. By this sacrifice of himself in his bloodshed on the cross, he legitimately, really, and fully satisfied God's justice on their behalf. Yet, their justification is based entirely on free grace because he was given by the Father for them. Where does that come? It comes from our text there, verse 25. It says that he, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses. That means that God the Father is putting Jesus the Son forward. Who ultimately crucified Jesus? Not the Romans, not the Jews, not you and me primarily and principally, but the Father who enacted a plan before the foundations of the earth for redemption. And it was God who desired to crush the Son to appease His wrath and raise Him up again for our justification. So that means, friends, that we are saved by God, from God, for God. 
Because he did it all. He was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction were accepted in their place. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them. And how, how often do these English Puritans have to come back to that? It's almost as if they had gospel, gospel amnesia too. These things were done freely, not because of anything in them, so that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God would be glorified in the justification of sinners. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and then finally raised, raised for our justification. Up to this point, we've been putting a lot of emphasis on the sacrificial death of Jesus, as glorious as it is. But here, Paul, for the first time, and then we're going to get into it in the rest of Romans, introduces this glorious truth of how Jesus was raised for our justification. In other words, Jesus is vindicated. And Jesus' vindication, Jesus' justification, Jesus is justified. He's sinless. He's holy. He's victorious. And the Spirit raises Jesus up from the grave. And now God takes that justification of Jesus. And by the gift of faith that he gave to us, he reckons it ours. Friends, um, I'm not great at application. I don't, I don't do that well. I, I wish I could fill in the blanks for you more. I don't know what to tell you other than this, is that like, if you stare at that truth, we're about to land this plane. We're going to come around the Lord's table. I wish I had a whole bunch of really, really helpful things to, I, I, just, oh, I, just, I just want you to see that truth so clearly. And then I, and I'm just begging that the Holy Spirit would then take this truth and just run it a thousand different directions in your life, right? That he, would, that he would heal scar tissue of false religion. That he, would, that, he would, that he would wipe away years and decades of self-condemnation. That, that he would rouse you out of a tired religious Bible belt existence. And that the glory of God in the justification of sinners through the work of his son and the sovereign gift of faith that he gives those that he saves would so enrapture and captivate your heart that it would absolutely blow the doors off of your worldview. And if you haven't noticed, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what we do every Sunday. We just want to see the glory of God and pitch a fit every Sunday and let it just kind of stir up God's application through his Holy Spirit in our lives. Do you see that? It's this truth that causes a couple to take their three young children and go to the other side of the world where there are a minuscule amount of Christians so that they would give their lives away for the gospel. It's this truth that causes a white, upper-class person in this church to befriend and love somebody that's not like them, that's from a different neighborhood, to not look down upon them, to care for them. It's this truth that causes a person of, of color to come into this mostly white church and to say, hey, I got some barriers I got to overcome because these people don't understand me, but I'm going to give them grace because I'm going to do life with these people for the glory of God. It's this truth that supersedes all of these petty 
temporal, sinful, little stupid things that we dwell on. It's this thing that overrides it all and unites us together in Christ, infuses us with passion for his glory, and causes us to live for him and fight sin. That's all I got. Let's pray. Lord, as the ushers come forward to serve us, may we come to this table seeing this truth. And just... And in my heart and the hearts of these people that I, I, I love very much do, do a thousand things that we can't even anticipate or know that we need. All for the glory of your name and for the good of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. As the team comes back to lead us in some worship, the ushers are going to be... <clears throat> standing by the communion tables, if you are a Christian, a Christian, a member of this church or part of some other church, if you're believing in Jesus, you're welcome to come and take the bread and the juice, which represents Jesus' body and blood that was broken and spilled for us. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you not to take because we don't want you to profess something that you don't yet believe. We don't want to unwittingly make a hypocrite out of you but we're really glad that you're here and we're not in any way intending to embarrass you. But as people get up out of their seats in a moment and when they're ready, as they come to the table, you can just stay where you are. And I, along with any other Christian in this room, would love to speak to you further about what it means to trust in Jesus. But let's come to the table now. Let's come to the one who has fully and freely satisfied God for us. Let's stand together.